Hi, and welcome to Women at Warp. Join us as our crew of four women Star Trek fans boldly go on our bi-weekly mission to explore our favorite franchise. My name is Andy, and thanks for tuning in. I'm joined today by Sue. Hi, everybody. Now, today we're going to be doing a very special book club episode, one that we've been teasing and talking about for close to three months now. When we were discussing what book to choose, we got a lot of suggestions for several of the books written by Diane Duane, especially the Riansu series, which is also known as the Bloodwing Chronicles. So we actually decided to do an author focus instead of a book focus. And we are extremely lucky that Diane graciously agreed to come on to the show and answer some of our questions. When we recorded our conversation with Diane, we had a lot of connectivity and latency issues on the the voiceover IP call, and we were so happy when we finally got a stable call that we forgot to give her a chance to properly introduce herself on the show or give her a proper introduction ourselves. So I'm going to do that right now. Diane Duane's first novel was published in 1979, and since then, she's published more than 50 novels, numerous short stories, and various comics, computer games, and more. She's appeared several times on the New York Times bestseller list and garnered awards from such organizations as the American Librarians Association and the New York Public Library. She's presently best known for her continuing Young Wizard series of young adult fantasy novels about the New York-based teenage wizards Nina Callahan and Kit Rodriguez. Uh, She wrote one of the first episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation, that would be the Emmy-nominated Where No One Has Gone Before, and over the course of her career has actually worked with Star Trek in more forms than any other person alive, television, books, audio, comics, manga, and computer games. And so basically she's awesome. She is pretty awesome. We had an epic amount of fun with her um, when she came on to the show and we were really excited to talk to her. So we're going to jump right into that interview. So was there any pressure from the publishers post TNG to manipulate the Rihansu series into more like the Romulans that were presented on the TV show? The answer is no, absolutely not. They, uh, the understanding when I came back to work on the books again was that this portion of the Star Trek universe had, had more or less been ring-fenced for me, that they understood that it was an AU, and that they were fine with that. And I have to confess that that sort of turned my brains around in my head a little bit. I mean, first of all, because it, it, it's an insane honor to have them say, come on in here and write alternate Star Trek, as it were, under the aegis of, of the, uh, the, the franchise. And I said, well, fine. Um, what seemed to be the issue at the publisher's end was that people liked the books as they had been started um, you know, in in the beginning of the series. And that was the way they wanted to continue. Uh, and so I just sort of said, okay, I can, I can cope with that. And I went on to complete the series as, as it had been originally planned before everything went a little bit crazy. And that's the way it went. So uh, I was, I was very happy to get the chance to finish up that story arc, which had been kind of leaning on my shoulder you know, whispering to me for for a lot of years, and uh, to send it on its way. That was that was a lot of fun. 
What's it like to write novels set in a TV series universe, knowing that what you create won't be considered canon, and that anything you've meticulously established can be contradicted by a few lines of dialogue on screen? This may shock people, but that doesn't bother me in the slightest. Uh, it, it's probably not terribly well known, but within literally months of becoming a published novelist, I was also working in television. And that's the way it is in TV. Uh, that anything you write this week may be contradicted completely by something the franchise you're working with sanctions next week or the week after, and that's just the way it goes. You pull on your big girl knickers and get over it. Uh, and you'd be surprised how many people don't. There are a great number of, in particular, novelists who are so used to being gods in their own universe, I mean, that that's one of the pleasures of being a novelist generally, that they find it very difficult to do franchise work of any kind, whether whether it's televised, you know, television or film, or whether it is writing spin-off work. Um, but I came very early to the understanding that I was most likely going to be rewritten, sometimes violently, <laughs> within an inch of my life, within hours of finishing a piece of work, and. The if, if you're going to work for very long in film or television or animation, which is where I got started, um, you learn that that's just how it is. Um, if, if you can't cope with creativity in that mode, you need to get out of it because they're not going to make it any easier for you. That, that's not their job. Uh, fortunately, when I broke into animation, my, my story editors actually came looking for me, having read my first novel. And they, they said, would you like to write cartoons? I went, oh, well, yes, <laughs> why wouldn't I? And shortly thereafter, I found myself writing for Scooby-Doo. Um, and it's, it's an interesting situation to be able to say uh, that Scrappy and I are colleagues, you know, or, or contemporaries <laughs> anyway. We, we got into animation around the same time. Um, and really, you just get used to being rewritten more or less immediately. And it's, it's all part of the rough and tumble of television writing from the very lowest levels, you know, the, the animated levels, right up to high-end miniseries work. Um, you get notes. You get rewritten. That's just the way it is. And whatever you did, you know, last season may be completely rolled over with cleats this season. And, you know, you just pick yourself up, dust yourself off and say, I mean, the important question at this point is, did the check clear? If the check cleared, you're okay. And you dust off and get ready to do it again. Uh, the, the books, it's the same deal. When, when you enter into work for hire at the novel writing end for a licensor, uh, be it Tom Clancy or Marvel or, or you know, Paramount for Trek or whatever, you understand perfectly well that they own every word you're writing for this um, and that they can do whatever they please with it. And, you know, that may involve completely discrediting or disavowing everything you did next year or the year after. Uh, and, you know, you shrug. You shrug and you say to yourself, did the check clear? The, the other important thing about it is you don't do this work so much for longevity in the creative mode. You do it because you really want to do it. You do it because you just, you're willing to take the chance of, of your work 
you know, becoming less than canonical, not that it wasn't less than canonical to start with, within minutes of having committed it. But you are willing to do that because you just wanted to tell that particular story so much that you didn't care. When I first got into it at, at the Star Trek novel end, I, I, I had read a, a Star Trek novel by another writer who I knew, and uh, to say I was disappointed by it would be putting it real, real mildly. And, and I, I walked out of that that experience with that book. I kind of chucked the book away. And I said to myself, I could write a better I, – I could, I could eat a ream of typing paper and barf a better Star Trek novel than that. <laughs> and, you know, big words, right? Uh, but I went – you know, I, I started revolving in, in my mind a, a plot that had been obsessing me for a little while or, or haunting me for a bit. And finally, I called my agent and I said, Don, guess what? I'm going to write a Star Trek novel. And there's this long pause at the other end on the phone. He says, do you have to? And I said, yes, yes, I have to. Because the, the definition for me then and now for a good Star Trek novel is one that can't effectively be told in any other universe, which was why once when somebody accused me of having retreaded some other science fiction work I was doing by just sort of filing the character names off and sticking Star Trek characters into it, I became really incensed. I don't do that. I don't need to do that. Does anyone think I am so short of ideas that I, I would need to do that kind of thing. I, I got really angry over, over that. But anyway, so I went off, uh, you know, did this outline, and my agent sent it off to uh, Bantam as was at that point. They were just actually at that point about to change the novel franchise from Bantam to uh, Pocketbooks. And Bantam said, God, we love this, but we're not going to have the license for long. And there was the usual kerfuffle that attends uh, a license or changing publishing houses, and finally, when Pocket had the rights, they said, "This book that you you, you pitched to Bantam, we love this. We want to publish it." And I said, "Fine, let, let's go." Uh, that was the Wounded Sky. And uh, after I did that, they said, "Well, would you ever like to do some more?" I went, "You know, it's funny you should mention. <laughs> I have a few more ideas lying around." Um, and that's the way that went. How did you meet David Gerald, and what effect did he have on your writing in general? Um, we met at a science fiction convention in New York. Uh, it was one of my first ones. Um, I was working with the the con committee on that one. Um, I I have an, a lot of history with with New York science fiction and Star Trek and, uh, fandom. And uh, David was a guest at this thing, and uh, I gather, if if I remember correctly, he, he wasn't feeling well that evening. And, and I, I suppose that you would know that before I was professionally published, or before I was you know a writer full time, I, I was a nurse. And uh, so somebody said, one of the guests isn't feeling well. Come on and take a look at him. And I did. He was fine. Uh, I think it was as much the sort of pressure of him being chased down the hallway by a bunch of people who were really eager to have a long discussion of something with him um, and just the general wear and tear of being a convention. And, and uh, we, got, we got friendly. And the issue of writing for a living you know, and, and what it was like came up. And, and David was a great example of 
how it could be done when it was working. Uh, some years went by, I, I left psychiatric nursing in, in New York and started doing private duty and uh, other nursing, public health nursing in, in California. And uh, after a while of being out there, suddenly I found myself working with David as, as assistant, his assistant. And uh, it was enjoyable work, but, but in particular, what I got a first-hand education in was what it looked like to be someone who wrote professionally for a living. Uh, David is a hard worker, and David is one of those people who takes no bullshit from his muse. He sits down and gets the work done. And I looked at him, and it, it looked surprisingly easy, actually. And, and I, you know, I, such as <laughs> the self-assurance of the young. And I, I said, you know, well, he's doing this, and, and apparently it is possible to make a living doing this. So, well, you know, maybe this is worth a try. I, I had been writing for my own entertainment ever since I was very small. I think I wrote my first novel at seven or eight and, you know, illustrated it with crayon and, and the whole thing. And from that moment until meeting up with David and coming to work for him, it had literally never occurred to me that, that writing professionally was something I could do. Um, and finally I said, well, you know, okay, it's working for him. Maybe, maybe this is, is what could work for me. So very quietly at that point, I started work on, on my first novel. I say very quietly because the day I made the mistake of telling David that, that this really looked like a, a good thing and that, that I would like to be a writer, he sort of rolled his eyes at the ceiling and said, oh God, another one. And he didn't know, but that was absolutely the best thing he could have done because I just sort of looked at him quietly and I thought, you supercilious son of a bitch, I am going to show you and so I went off quietly and started work on, on my first book and, and uh, occasionally when he was away on holiday I would, I would use some of his equipment he had a very very early sort of computer that I was using to help me in typing out my drafts and as it happens I got a little careless about um, the way I was disposing of my paperwork and he actually found a page of something I had been typing, and and he looked at it. He said, "You know, this doesn't look terrible from from what I can see. I'll tell you what: when you're done with this book, why don't you let me read it? And if I like it, I'll give it to my publisher, and we'll see what they say." Which was extremely generous and and good of him. And uh, so I finished the book, gave it to him. He went, "Huh? Okay, read it." And immediately sent it to his publisher, and two weeks later, the publisher bought it. And that was The Door into Fire. And uh, over the course of the next couple of years, that got me nominated twice in a row for the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer. So that was, that was an auspicious beginning, I think, I think it's fair to say. But, but David in particular, um, I think, was there accelerating a process that I like to think would have happened eventually. But there's no question whatever that he really sped it up. He is... As a writer, a tremendous role model. He is merciless with himself. He is very 
tough on himself as regards his background work, his research. Um, and he is one of those people who will go, you know, hunting the right word, the exact right word to use in the exact right place and will not rest until he's chased it to its lair. That is a really good role model to have. And, you know, to this day, I have a tremendous amount to thank him for. Uh, you know, 50 novels later, I think it's fair, fair to say that uh, he was not he was not uh, mistaken in, in what he pe- pegged as promising raw material. So, uh, you know, and, and that said, there are still days when this material feels pretty raw. <laughs> you know, 50 novels on, I, I'm maybe more aware than, than previously that there is a lot to learn yet. I'm, I'm really just sort of hitting my stride now. But, you know, if, if not for David, this would have taken a lot longer happening. Okay. Does your experience in psychiatric care help you flesh out your characters? And if so, how? How do you make aliens seem truly alien, yet still bring out enough of their humanity that readers can identify with them? You know, the second question, I wish I knew how to, how to describe how I do that. I'm not clear. I've had a lot of good examples. Uh, C.J. Cherry, for example, is one of the absolute masters of doing really alien, alien-seeming species that you can still find some shred of common ground with. Um, motivation is key, I would guess, and that, that's one of the reasons the psychiatric training is, is of assistance, because when I was training, at least, most of psych, most of psych nursing is about understanding motivation. Why do people do? Why do people do the things they do? Um, if you can describe that well for characters in a book, then people will find a way to um, get in sync with them. And that, that's really it. If, if you have a clear sense of what motivates your characters and how to find that, how to drill down or tunnel through to what your character's major business is about, um, that works well in prose and it works well in film. So, so everything I learned in psych, in that mode, I bring to my writing work day by day and it hasn't it hasn't let me down yet so this is this is useful i feel like you can see your psychiatric background in your enterprise's commitment to the mental health of the crew specifically with the addition of the recreation department and harb tanzer as a character absolutely just can't really do their job under stress it would seem to me unless they have a chance to relax and and even the relaxation is going to require a certain amount of guidance uh in how you relax uh i will have always felt that if i had anything to bring to the enterprise in general it's the concept of it as a very very large team of consummate professionals i don't think idiots will last long in space, <laughs> you know, if you follow me. I think the people who are sent out to do Starfleet work have to be really good at their jobs. And people who work that hard and that effectively will also play very hard and effectively. They'll need to feel that they can do that safely, that they have a, a, a space where, where they can let loose and know that what they need to do to, to recreate themselves, literally, is not going to be misunderstood. 
and that, I suppose, is where that came from. Uh, and and one finds as as we follow that set of characters through the books that just because they play hard doesn't mean they can't work hard or be quite deadly when they need to um, in in the uh, protection of the enterprise. It, it seemed, you know, even even a good man has to go to war sometimes, and uh, the people who run the Enterprise's playtime will be just as deadly about taking care of the ship itself when they have to be. As for the consummate professional bit, I see that in how you wrote Sulu. Kirk trusts him to run the helm with little to no interference, and you give him some seriously badass moments. Oh, but I love George Takei <laughs> so much. Um, you know, And I love Sulu's character and what George brought to it, brings to it. And again, yes, a professional. It, 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 if they are superlatively talented at something, let them get the hell on with it. Um, and they will prove you right. They will go out of their way to take care of you and, and prove to you how good they are at what they do. Um, and that makes, that makes your central characters stronger, not weaker. Um, that they can impel that kind of performance um, from, from the people they work with. Uh, you know, a good manager says what they need and then gets the hell out of your way. And I would really like to think that Kirk would be. So your Star Trek TV credit is for the TNG episode where no one has gone before, which is the episode where we're introduced to the Traveler for the first time. How did you get into writing for Star Trek on TV? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, it's mostly as I described it, having started in at the novel end when i wrote the wounded sky i you know left it behind me for some years and then then trek came back to television and suddenly everybody in town everybody in la was working on a star trek script it was inevitable uh and michael reeves who is an old writing buddy and uh, whose house we were actually living in Michael came to me one, one evening and said, look, I've been working on an outline for a Trek script here, and it keeps looking like The Wounded Sky. So why don't we just do this? Why don't we go in and pitch together? And that was so insanely jealous. Uh, jealous excuse me, not jealous, of course. Uh, so, so generous of him. And at that point in particular, it was generous because... Uh, I had no live action credit at that point, and they were only taking Writers Guild members uh, for pitching. So we went in and pitched, and I have to say that was one of the most terrifying experiences of my life. I have scrubbed in on brain surgery. It did not frighten me as much as go as waiting outside Gene Roddenberry's office getting ready to go in and pitch to him. And that said, you know, it was completely ridiculous to be concerned. Gene was a pussycat. Bob Justman uh, was there. Uh, David was there because he had sort of, you know, helped us get in that particular door. And to hear them describe what we pitched them at that point as the Star Trekiest Star Trek story they had ever heard, that was a bit of a bit of a blast. Now that said, <laughs> positive innings like that you know, don't necessarily mean that everything's going to run smoothly afterwards. And we were most comprehensively rewritten. Yeah, th those changes, there were considerable changes of the script that Michael and I turned in, and we then went on holiday uh, to, to the UK because Worldcon was, was in uh, Brighton that year. 
um, of the script that we turned in, one scene and one line of dialogue, one, excuse me, one scene and one shot remain. Uh, the shot is mine. That's um, Picard uh, going into the turbo lift and nearly falling out of the ship. And the one scene is Michael's scene with, uh, uh, with Picard and his mother, uh, who has been dead for some time. And this goes back in its way to what I was discussing earlier about the, the dangers of working for any licensor, that what you did last time may not stay valid for very long. And when we saw how thoroughly we had been rewritten, uh, our first intention, well, we were, as I said, on holiday, and we must have spent two or three nights and several bottles of wine inventing exciting pseudonyms for ourselves because if you don't like a rewrite, the guild will allow you to, um, instead of having your own name on the credits, use a pseudonym instead. And uh, we actually got so busy inviting, inventing pseudonyms that by the time we had decided on anything, the, uh, the episode was already in the can and it was too late. And that said, uh, when it got nominated for an award here and there, I mean, it was still our names that showed, not the name of the person who had completely rewritten it. And you just, you take a deep breath and you look to see, did the check clear? And yes, the check cleared. And you move on. This is what TV writers do. Uh, it's, it's just part of part of the landscape. It, it was a little piquant, perhaps, in that we were one of the very first episodes done, and as a result, no one was really clear who, you know, it, in some cases, what the character is even looked like. I mean, when, when Michael and I were writing Picard, uh, Patrick Stewart had not yet been cast. So all we knew was that, you know, the captain of the Enterprise, well, he had some French background. That's really all we knew about him. And so we were kind of working in a vacuum. Yet, even in the extremely rewritten state um, and at the, that very early stage of production of the series, um, everyone does brilliantly. And, you know, it, it's hard to begrudge the way it turned out. It's just, it's just what's so. Did you ever pitch another story for the show? Um, not, not then. Not for quite a while. I remember pitching to Ron Moore sometime later, but I think that may have been for DS9. It's it's quite a while now. We were we were actually living. We had settled in in Ireland at that point, and I remember having a long discussion with with Ron over the phone, and the story didn't didn't go. Um, but that happens nine times out of ten, you know, or twenty times, or fifty times. Fifty, you know, you'll pitch fifty times for the one that that actually makes it over the uh, the transom. Oh, um, no, but but I have I have you know fond memories. That was uh, was quite an experience at at that at that point in time. Where do you get your ideas for some of the more exotic aliens in your books? I I tend to look uh, a surprising amount at deep sea life. There is some really odd stuff going on underwater um, on this planet alone, and and some of those things you can uh, extrapolate into alien-looking creatures without, without too much trouble. I, just, I have sort of a, you know, an unused alien box in the bottom of my head that you know, I'll, I'll just dig around in there when I need an alien and, and, and pull one out. 
Oh, fun fact. Another show on our network did a role-playing show where one of the hosts played Commander Flipper, which is super similar to your character, Hui, and they did it for their 100th episode. So Commander Flipper is now actually a part of the Trek FM family. Well, why the hell not? Um, Hui was, was a present for Rick Sternbach. Uh, Rick had been one of the first ones to postulate that there would be Delphine or Cetacean uh, crew members in Starfleet. And I was thinking of him when I wrote that part. Uh, if I did a small sneaky tie into the Young Wizards universe, I can't be blamed for that. You know, you gotta, you gotta do something to entertain yourself every now and then. Um, Who's your favorite original character that you created? I think it has to be Ale. Um, the the whole Rihansu end of things. I was I was very much looking for a female character who would be Kirk's equal, and you know the kind of person that both of them you know would look at the other one and go, God damn them! <laughs> you know that each of them would be quite attractive, you know, quite attracted to one another yet find the other one completely untenable and annoying sometimes, and yet completely respect each other. And if there was a little subtext of burn going on there, if there was a little, wouldn't it be interesting? And no, no, of course, we can't even think about that because we, we have a job to do here. Um, you know, let that be there. Let the subtext be there, but let it at all times be deeply submerged and just never let on. Uh, but I saw, you know, no reason that, you know, that couldn't be done. I thought to myself at the time, it's about time there was a character like this uh, to be a foil for Kirk. And uh, a lot of people seem to have liked the way that that turned out. Ale and Kirk actually prompted my first try at fan fiction. Please don't go looking for it. It's terrible. No, no fear. No fear. You should have seen my first fan fiction. Oh, jeez. Are you kidding? Star Trek fusion with the monkeys. All right. <laughs> I don't know why I'm confessing to this. I really don't. Um, you, you know, it's it's the old thing. You you cannot tell where the way you start is going to lead you. It it, it it's very very odd. Um, it never occurred to me writing Trek fanfic. It was terrible, terrible Trek fanfic back in the day that I would someday fetch up and why don't we try like talking like human beings <laughs> since the system <laughs> just actually to say, though, seems that to be supporting actually... that. We got some good stuff. Your your answers were awesome. I was just kind of like rocking back and forth, wishing I could say something every once in a while. <laughs> Thank um, you. So we ended by saying, "Yay, fan fiction!" Um, basically, I uh, I don't think I've ever shipped anything in the original series so hard as I shipped Ale and Kirk. I was like all about it, um, and uh, Sue might have a little bit of a background in fan fiction as well. Just a little bit. <laughs> I don't Specifically, Picard Crusher. <laughs> oh dear me! Uh, it's it's where I came from, and the the funny thing right now is because of things like Fifty Shades of Grey and Twilight. You know, suddenly everybody is sort of lurching out of the the woodwork, um, and if they have any fanfic 
uh, credential at all. They're waving it around the, over their heads. And I come of a, you know, sort of slightly older time where it wasn't that we were ever, you know, instructed to hide it or anything like that. It's just that it wasn't discussed. It, it didn't really seem to come up. Um, but God knows it's it's there, and you know my my fantasy work is grounded in terrible Tolkien fanfic that I wrote, um, and and so on down the line. And the Trek stuff, I was a first generation Trekkie, so I had plenty of time to uh, refine what I wanted to do in that universe between when I first saw it when I was sixteen and when I started writing it professionally at whatever the hell age I was twenty six or seven or eight i don't even know anymore um and you know like right now i'm working on like four different novels and and you know two screenplays and and all this other crap and it it can really when you are a career writer can really just be hard to keep track and it doesn't mean that even though you've got all this stuff going on that you don't love every single one of them like your firstborn child um, you just, it's really hard to love them all that way at once. <laughs> you know? So you kind of have to pick one to work on today and, you know, one to work on the next day. Or when you get the phone call that says drop everything and do this now, then you fall madly in love with that particular thing for, for six months. And, you know, then you sort of, you know, pick yourself up having, having, you know, exhausted yourself in the service of this universe over here, and you must immediately rush headlong into that other universe over there, and and you know, get into it and get your get your arms dirty and your hands. It's uh, it's exciting in its way. Um, there is never at this end of things any danger of running out of ideas. I mean, that that's that's what incensed me so hard about that one person who who accused me of you know retreading something for Trek. I would never do it that disservice. Um, but also, it would be a bad day around here if I had not had two or three novel ideas by the time I was finished with breakfast. Um, but the truth is, most ideas are crap. Uh, most of them will not stand up to the strain of, uh, you know, expanding them into full-size stories. Some ideas are just too slight. Um, you know, they just won't bear up under the stresses of what you need to do to make a good novel or a good screenplay of them. Uh, some will, but they belong to other people, um, which is an annoyance, but, you know, that, that happens in, in the real world. Um, so unless you can get the, uh, the permission to use those ideas, you're, you know, there's not, nowhere you can take that. Um, some will definitely work but just the time isn't right there there's no support for it right now in in the industry or your the other side of it is the personal side you may have your desk you know stacked up with so many th- projects that you are working on that you just have no choice but to say to something that someone offers you i just can't i can't do that now and then it gets given to someone else and you, you know, you weep little tears you know, in the middle of the night sometimes. And there's just nothing you can do. Um, it, it happens that way. But ideas, uh, my, my to-do-ist list is too long to look at right now. Um, I, I really, I, I need to live another 60 years, frankly, because otherwise I'm not going to get all this work done. I was wondering where Worf and Riker's love of opera comes from. I have loved opera for many, many, many years, which is one of the reasons I got so excited about the the prospect of being invited in on the ring 
thing, uh, especially since we decided as we went into it that we were completely going to throw Wagner to one side, that we were not going to have any of the operatic tropes in the material, that we were going to derive everything from the Elder Edda and, and you know, that, that whole line of thought. Um, but I love opera like crazy, and uh, th there are people who will claim that one of the ways you know for sure it's a Diane Duane story is if there's opera hidden in it somewhere. <laughs> um, that's possible. There might be some truth in that. Um, you also have to look out for references to Switzerland, <laughs> which, which is a place I love very, very much. <sighs> Where were we? Opera. Um, so, no, the operatic connection has been there for many, many years. I, I, we went on a school trip to um, the Met when I was, I think, in like fifth grade. And uh, there was a beautiful lady in a shiny dress standing on a stepladder singing uh, the, the great aria that uh, Astra Fiamante, the queen of the night, sings at the beginning of the magic flute. And I was gone. I said, that's it. I'm done. <laughs> I love this. What is it? <laughs> yeah. and I've spent the next sort of, you know, 50 years finding out what it is. Uh, opera is, is a fabulous art form. God, I love it. One of the things that I really enjoy about your books is how well you write the characters. I mean, McCoy especially is one of the ones that comes to mind for that. Um, I just, I hear his voice when you're writing him. Is there a specific character that's really easy to write for? Are there some that are hard to write for that you had trouble finding their voices? I don't know that it's a matter of having trouble. I think, I think you have to listen. You know, you have to listen really hard to make sure you get the cadence right. Uh, you know, if, if, if you watch enough Star Trek, you will acquire a certain level of expertise where you can hear things when, when you try them out in prose, you can hear things that Sulu would not say, that Chekhov would not say, that Kirk would not say. And if you can avoid those things, you'll be all right. Uh, it's uh, it, it works for me at least. Just uh, it, it's been such a pleasure lately uh, rewatching the digitally remastered um, versions of the original series and just reacquainting myself with the sound of those voices and their cadences, in particular, with an eye to comparing them to what's going on in the new sets of movies. And in particular, the way Carl Urban channels McCoy is so bloody brilliant. Yes. And, and the way Zach does Spock. It, it, it just moments when the voices are identical. And, and the, the, the cadences and the rhythms in which they speak are perfect. Perfect. I saw, to my great delight the other day, that apparently Carl Urban has taken to wearing the pinky ring <laughs> that McCoy, which I had never really noticed. And now, now that I know about it, you see it everywhere. That, that um, DeForest Kelly insisted he be allowed to wear. Uh, it was, it was uh, something from his mother. And he apparently told Gene Roddenberry, if I cannot wear this ring when I'm shooting McCoy, I will not play the character. And finally, Roddenberry said, well, okay, yeah, fine. Um, and, and so you'll, you'll look at the little finger of his left hand, and he's always got that ring. And Carl Urban is wearing it as well in the, in the films. It's fabulous. I mean, the, the commitment to getting it right is, is just so amazing. So do you, <laughs> do you have a favorite character to write for? Or is it just whichever know. mindset that you're, you're in at the time? You know, 
It's the one I'm writing right now. It's usually <laughs> the one I'm writing right now. Um, I I just spent for uh, I, I've been constructing a series of sort of in between stories to fit in between books nine and ten of the Young Wizard series. Books ten book ten comes out in February. Games Wizards play and between. A Wizard of Mars and that, you know, like five years of, of real time has elapsed. And I've just spent the guts of the last two and a half months inside Kit's head as most of the books have been written with Nita as the primary point of view character, though that's been sliding a little bit in more recent books, partly just because of a sense that Kit has not been getting enough airtime. And having just spent like the last month in his head, it's like, I love him. <laughs> I love my character so much. He is so great. Um, and uh, God knows his sister Carmela is is a danger. She is a terror. Uh, I look I look forward to spending some time in her head if if it can be worked out to uh, happen in book eleven. But um, it, it's it's whoever I'm working on now. Um, I, I have after I finish the the projects I'm working on at the moment. I do have. I know I have. One more Star Trek novel in me, and I need to find out who I have to talk to about that at uh, Pocket Books and, and and say, let's let's tell this story. And that is such a Kirk and Spock story. It's going to be so funny. The working title is Grand Theft Starship, <laughs> and it's you know Kirk is so good at stealing starships. Let's actually send him to steal one for a change, all right? You know that that's like you know not a Romulan one or or whatever. And uh, we'll we'll see if they go for this. I, I'm really hoping they will go for the the storyline. It, it's all outlined. It's been ready for a while. It's just I had other things I had to finish first, and I'm just hoping that. Um, Oh, there's a film project looming over the horizon whose name I cannot speak at the moment, but I'm just hoping that stays out of the way for a few months because I would love to uh, get a first draft on this book in to pocket, you know, assuming that they like it, and uh, just let them let them run loose. Oh, God. So does it always work that way where you have to pitch a story idea to them, they never come to you when you're writing tie-in novels? Um, pretty much, yeah. Um, or th- that's been the way it's been for me. I mean, the, the exception will be if an editor, you know, has an idea that they think would be terrific for you to write, um, they'll, they'll bring it to you. Uh, but generally speaking, I, my experience has been that they seem to prefer the ones that I bring to them. And uh, again, that, that syncs up with my concept of, the way I prefer to deal with with licensed properties in general, but in particular with Star Trek, there are a lot of people who would open their veins in front of you for the right to write a Star Trek novel. And, you know, this makes me chary of wanting to hog the privilege. I've gotten to do this ten times now. Um, you know, there are lots of other people who ought to have a chance to grab this ring off the carousel as they go around. So I have no intention of pitching any story to Pocket or Paramount that is not that cannot be best told as a Star Trek story. I have lots of other places to tell general science fiction stories or fantasy stories or whatever, but whatever I bring them has got to be best suited for Star Trek. I will not exploit one of those precious novel 
slots for anything else. Um, which is why I would kind of resist, frankly, if even if the editors, you know, did descend on me and say, we think you'd be perfect for this thing. Um, that may be so, but I, you know, I, I kind of resist that a bit. So I think this sort of follows. It's something I've been wondering about. With Dark Mirror, you sort of have, basically you have written the only foray into the Mirror Universe for the TNG crew. And it's oftentimes people call those next-gen characters too perfect or, or just too precious. So what was it like <laughs> taking them into that, that darker universe? Oh, God, that was delicious. Are you kidding? I have more mail from young boys and young men asking me, please, to send them pictures of what Deanna looks like in her version of the <laughs> Dark Troy. So, Dark Troy. There, there is, you know, always that temptation. And, and among writers, writers joke about it, you know, about doing the evil twin thing because it, it's seen as, as too easy. It, it, it's kind of seen as low-hanging fruit. Um, yet at the same time, if you are sufficiently in the um, unmirrored character's head to know where their weaknesses are, um, it's possible to construct a very believable mirror version. Um, you know, one that exploits those weaknesses and turns them dark. Uh, I mean, I don't think anybody, you know, looks at the mirror Sulu and <laughs> finds him too precious. You know, <laughs> um, it's like, oh, George, what did you do there? Ah! Um, and you know, it, 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 anyway, it was, it was a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun sitting around thinking, how do you turn Picard evil? You know, what is a nasty Troy like? Um, Barkley. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, who is so ineffective in the real world. And uh, he's ineffective still in this one, you know, but in a different <laughs> way, a nasty way. Um, and it's just a lot of fun playing with that. Uh, I think, you know, all of us who are self-examining enough to understand that there are parts of us that can't bear the daylight terribly well, um, you know, would, would find a certain amount of amusement in, in building the bad version of these nice characters. The bad Picard is just like, oh boy, what a greaseball. <laughs> oh God. And, and the, the joy of it for me is in watching the, uh, the home universe characters' reactions to them. Uh, that's, that's where it really works. And, and also to, to a lesser extent for me, because background is everything, in constructing the universe that creates these characters and, and it makes it possible for them to be so god-awful. Uh, that was fun. I, I have a, a long-time fondness for alternate histories, for studying the, the hinge points at which things go wrong. And um, that was fun, doing that, doing that for the Federation. That was, that was enjoyable. One thing I like is that how some of the characteristics in the dark versions are the same. And Picard having yeah. to deal with that, ha having to deal with the fact that, hey, he painted the same painting in two different universes. What does that say about him in his quote-unquote good universe, that he still shares those qualities? 
Yeah, absolutely. Because it can't be completely different. Otherwise, no one will buy it. You know, it, it's, it's just not uh, as interesting if there aren't some points where the Venn diagram does overlap. Um, because without that, there's no conflict. If the other person is completely a wrong version of you, then you have no problem with clocking him over the head with a vase <laughs> and killing him. You know, um, There needs to be drama. Drama is conflict. And, and in this case, conflict can lie very fruitfully in the way these two characters are alike instead of, or as, as well as the ways they're different. I have... A question about your, do you have a background in science? Because you use a lot of science and, you know, you made up an entire discipline called creative physics, which I enjoyed. Um, what is your background in science? Because you write it very convincingly, although I'll be the first to admit I know nothing about science. I was, before I went into nursing school, I was studying astrophysics. Um, it ah. was my idea. It was my idea that I was going to be a professional astronomer. Then I found out, A, it's really hard to get any work being a professional astronomer, and B, I hit the higher math and bounced. And I became aware that though I might understand generally how a red giant worked or you know what was going on inside a black hole, um, I was not going to be able to describe that uh, in terms of the mathematics, and therefore my, my chances of getting a job in this business were like zero. Uh, this is my favorite thing. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I went into school also studying astronomy, and I mm. hit the physics and bounced and wound up with yeah. a math degree. So yeah. this is my favorite and, thing. And so, <laughs> So there, there it is. I mean, I had been, I had been in love with astronomy since I was eight. Our family's lawyer for my eighth birthday gave me a subscription to Sky and Telescope. And that was it. I was done. Right. I knew immediately that I was going to love this thing for the rest of my life, that it was profoundly important. Um, it, it, that astronomy just mattered and that all the sciences associated with it mattered. Uh, I, I still maintain a tremendous interest, not just in astronomy in general, but in, in things like space medicine. Um, and that never went away. And, and you know, I, I, when I became clear that the, you know, that science wasn't going to work, I, I turned my attention to the biological side. I had, I had won a um, New York State Regents Science and Nursing scholarship in high school and when the science blew out underneath me I said well there's still the nursing isn't there and so off I went to nursing school and that worked fine um, it taught me immediately never to be squicked by anything uh, the the very first day I was on the wards in nursing school um, you must bear in mind that, that at that time because it was um, a, a nursing school based at a psychiatric hospital in one of the old style chronic hospitals where people were just warehoused when they got old. Um, the first day of, on the wards, um, one of my patients that I was treating had gangrene and a significant portion of their foot came off in my hand while I was dressing it. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, exactly. And that is the point at which I understood that either if I had a problem with this, I was going to have to get over it real quick. Uh, 
And frankly, there's nothing to help you get over this quick problem better than going to school with other nursing students because lunchtime at nursing school turns into a who can squick everybody out else out best contest. <laughs> and so, you know, by the end of your first year, it's handled. You know, you've, you've seen all the most horrible things you can possibly see. Um, you've seen people get sick in ways that you can, you, you know, the, your wildest imaginings would not have treated you to. Um, you will see, as I did, a fair amount of death quite early on. And uh, you get used to it. And that whole turn of mind is something that I, I'd say it's useful both, you know, just in, in general life, but also, frankly, as a career writer, because you, you quickly learn that the thing that you thought you absolutely could not bear yesterday, you can bear if you stand up under it and say, okay, I am going to be the master of this situation. It is not going to be the master of me. Um, you learn grit. You learn grit in nursing school. Your stories in from, from nursing school reminded me immediately of uh, the scene in Intellivore, where where mm. Crusher's talking to Picard about her experiences, I guess in in her residency. Yeah, yeah, that was a difficult scene to write, and in retrospect, incredibly ableist. Um, and I I look at that now and think, I wish to God there was some way I could have phrased that better, because it it while it communicates the feeling of helplessness there there has to be a way to write that scene you know that would be less disenfranchising um nonetheless i mean one of the other things you do learn even if you don't always learn how to express it correctly is is compassion um you cannot stay in nursing if you don't have a fair amount of compassion or learn it learn it quick and uh, that maybe has been more useful to me in my writing than anything else because, again, it enables you to get into the heads of your characters and feel the pain that they need to be feeling when they go through some of the crap you put them through. Because as a writer, you really have a job to be merciless and cruel to your characters. You, you, you do not develop strength or growth in characters you're building by being nice to them. Um, your job is to take them to a bad place and push them through it so that they learn how to be better than they are. Um, that, you know, but at the same time, you're, you're allowed to feel sorry for them, even while you are dumping, you know, uh, pardon my French, shitloads of trouble on their heads. Um, it's it's your job as their creator to make them better than they were when you started. Or, incredibly worse, so that when you kill them, everyone goes, oh, thank God. <laughs> you know? <laughs> For every catifying rat, and you know the the building of good villains is something I study with with intense interest um, because they they can't be completely dark. You you cannot have bad guys who are completely irredeemable. There always has to be that sense that maybe maybe you could get them back if you could figure out the right thing to say. And you know the harsh truth is, in some cases, no, no, you won't get them back. They are just they're evil. Kill them. <laughs> uh, 
And and there is at the end of the day both tremendous satisfaction in that and always at the character creating end a little bit of sorrow going, Oh God, I wish, you know, but no, no, you needed to be dead. It's fine. <laughs> and then you move on. Moving a little bit away from the science and math side of things, um, can you talk a little bit about the fact that you developed a language for Rihansu? And how, I mean, what, what kind it's, of tools, you know, did you bring to that? Um, uh, faking it. <laughs> <laughs> really, fake, faking it and good example. Uh, my, one of my favorite, favorite um, writers, again, C.J. Cherry, um, she has a number of books in which the the characters she throws earth-based characters in with aliens at the deep end and forces them to learn their languages in in particular there is uh one book called oh god it's not brother of worlds it's the other one oh its title is eluding me oh, i'll i'll find it later i'll i'll mail it to you later but she takes this human character alone cold, stranded at the far fringes of space, so far away from Earth that no one is even terribly sure what he is, and flings him into the midst of an incredibly involved hunter of worlds. That was it, hunter of worlds. Flings him into the middle of this incredibly complex a multi-planet political situation to the solution of which he will eventually be key, but he has no language and he has to learn it word by word from these people as, as the book progresses. And the amazing thing is by the end of the book, the reader, you the reader, understand a significant portion of this language as well. Carolyn is so good at what she does. Then again, she was a Latin teacher. All right. So it's it's the kind of of expertise and bravura that you would expect from someone who taught people languages professionally. And I read that book and fell so hard in love with it and I said if she did this, I can do this. Um and so what I did was simply invent a number of words that I knew I was going to need to assign a meaning to. And then I wrote a very simple basic program that mimicked the sound of the words I had invented. Essentially, the language is kind of a cross between Welsh and Latin some ways. Um, it shares phonemes and uh, consonant pairs from both. And I instructed this language production program, just a very simple thing, to build me lots more words. And this it did. And then I developed a very rudimentary grammar for those words and started stringing to get them together and adding them uh, judiciously, I hope, to the story. Essentially, I was, I was doing my own spin on what CJ did in, in Hunter of Worlds, which is such a fabulous book. I recommend it insanely to everybody. It is, is it, again, her way with aliens. She, she produces humanoid aliens in this that are true predators, and they are so scary. They look lovely. The Aduv are really cool looking, and boy, you don't want to be shut in a room with one at the wrong time of month. Bad. <laughs> um, so it, it's, it's really, uh, it was, it was a great example and I, I just sort of put my own spin on that. Um, and then 
expanded it a little through the books that followed as I became clear exactly how much of the language I needed and how much I didn't. Because there comes a, a magic tipping point where there are too many cool alien words and your reader says, um, okay, bored with this now, and, and throws the book at the wall. You know, controlling the creative impulse in this regard is, 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 is as important as, as exercising it. I'm going to have to have your help with this next question because I'm not, I'm glad to find out that I guessed how to pronounce Ale's name on my own, yeah. but uh -huh. Menehesahe? Menehesahe. I mean, yeah. Menehesahe? It, it's essentially is three syllables. Menehesahe. Um, it's close, it's close enough. You know, you don't really pronounce that H very much. Um, it, it kind of falls out the way the double L's do in Welsh. Hmm. Um, yeah, you know, th this is the far side of the argument. Pronounce it any way you like. <laughs> as long as you recognize that this word means this thing over here, you're okay. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to get all, you know, pronunciation Nazi on you. It, it's just say it whatever way is easiest for you to say and move on. It, it's the story that counts, really. Well, the reason I brought it up is because it's a good example of this kind of underlying philosophy that you wrote for both Spock's World and Bloodwing. Um, yeah. They're kind of sisters in a way because you have Spock's World exploring the Vulcan side of things and Bloodwing um, exploring the Romulan side of things and how their history yeah. and philosophy kind of diverge. Um, and I'm yeah. just super fascinated by that and kind of wondering like, where did, were there real world kind of philosophies that you use to develop those or? Not as such. I mean, it's, it's hard to fake enlightenment, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a bit of a problem. Um, especially when working on the material for, for Ciroc, I mean, what you need to know is that something about this character and something about his worldview changed his whole world around him. That, that's, that's the important thing to know. And so I kind of, I, I've been very eclectic in my religious and, and, uh, ethnological studies for, for many years. And I sort of cherry picked uh, the best of, or what I consider the best of, for example, Zen philosophy. And cherry picked some other real obvious things like the golden rule and just restated them, uh, in, in different idioms that people hadn't seen them before. Um, and it seems generally to have worked. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's always humbling to, you know, say, oh, I'm, I'm gonna, you know, sit down today and, and try to develop a, a, you know, a, a worldview that, that will, you know, completely save a species life. Um, and so you are very cautious about what you choose to put into that particular basket, um, and how you're going to present it to people. Uh, it's either going to work or it's not. I, I got lucky with Spock's world. I think, I think by and large, it, it worked. Um, but it's, it's not easy. Uh, just a feeling of caution hung over that entire enterprise, so to speak. And, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, I'm, I'm glad it seems to have worked as well as it did. As, as for the, you know, the Vulcan and Romulan connection, we, we've always known they were connected. We've never really been given that much data about how tight the connection was. 
Um, and at the time, there was nothing. At the time, the publisher just said, go invent whatever you want. And so I did. Uh, and it seems to have worked for a lot of people. So, you know, I'm, I'm considering myself quite lucky in this regard. Yeah, I mean, the, when I think about both Romulan and Vulcan history now, I'm not sure that I could separate them from what is canon because to me, it really helped deepen all of that. And, you know, I don't think I could throw it out in my mind. You know, I don't think that I could put a clear delineation, I guess, between the two, which is a good thing, I think, um, but interesting. A lot of people have told me that, yeah, uh, a lot of people have, have told me that they have made better sense of what is canon by having this material to fall back on. Exactly, and, like the background. Yeah, and that's, that's fine. I'm, I'm delighted to have been so useful. Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, when someone asks you to get involved with writing for a thing like Star Trek, which, which has meant so much to me over the course of my life, I mean, if it wasn't for Star Trek, I wouldn't be married to Peter. Um, because it was in the, in the process of uh, dealing with a, a long, uh, long-standing practical joke that uh, David played on me that Peter and I actually, you know, banged into banged heads for the third time and fell in love uh, at a Star Trek convention. Where else? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, there are certain there are certain um, resonances in our life, and and you, when you do this work, or at least when I do this work. It's always with an eye of, this has given me so much, what can I give back? What can I, you know, put into the pond for, for other people to find? Uh, you know, you, all writers are acquisitive to some extent. You, all of us learn by copying the, the good work of other writers. And in this particular case, it was very much an issue of uh, what can I give Star Trek back um, from my own pool of expertise that will make it bigger. It's, it's the old magpie trope where the magpie steals something, but it brings back something shinier to put in its place. Um, and that has always been something I've tried to do. If I'm, if, if I'm going to write Trek, I will try to put it back bigger, deeper edgier, more meaningful than when I found it. Not that it wasn't already pretty damn big, meaningful, edgy, and deep already. Um, but you, you try to add. And if I've been successful at that, then that can only make me happy. That, that's, that's great to know. So did you have any other questions? I think only if you want to tell us about stuff you're working on now, what people should be looking for. Oh God! I, I, I really wish I could. That is what makes me crazy. The, the, this is one of the difficulties released. with. All right. Well, well, just released is is the piece of work that I was talking to to, to you about, Kit, uh, which is itself novel length, um, Young Wizard's Lifeboats, in which the the fine detail of how you save the people of a world that is about to be destroyed. We, we get into that in, in, as I said, some detail. It, it, normally, in a main sequence, Young Wizards book, I, re I wouldn't really have that much time to deal with something like that. Um, this time, there's plenty of room for it. And that is now 
on sale in our own ebook store, <laughs> which is uh, for those who want to know, ebooksdirect.dianedewayne.com. Um, the other thing, uh, the next mainstream, the, the main sequence. Uh, Young Wizards novel is coming out on Groundhog Day of uh, 2016, uh, Games Wizards Play, um, which is uh, essentially once every 11 years, the wizardly community on Earth holds what is known as the Invitational. And this is an event at which the smartest new young wizards of the present intake um, are invited along to demonstrate the hot new spells they've been building. Uh, young Other wizards, slightly older than they usually, are invited in to mentor the new intake or certain members of it. And Nita and Kit wind up with one guy who really, really, he doesn't... The question is at the beginning of the book, does he need mentors or does he need a sledgehammer just about here on the top of his head because he is so insufferable and uh, Nita's little sister Darine winds up um, mentoring uh, a young Iranian girl who the question with her is does she need a sledgehammer or a kick up the butt more it's kind of hard to tell um, things get quite involved but there's a lot of extremely fun character stuff in that one uh, some of it I'm, I'm going to get yelled at but I don't care it, it, it's always enjoyable um, after that uh, there are a couple of media projects I'm involved with that I wish to God oh I wish I could discuss them uh, I'm waiting in particular for one of them to pop because it means I'm going to be very very busy next year with a screenplay that, frankly, I'm the only person on earth qualified to write this screenplay. And I cannot wait. I cannot. Oh, oh God, I just want to chew my own arm off. It's so great. Um, <laughs> but that's that that project um, also hovering in, in the wings, and I have to talk to my editor at Harcourt about it, is Young Wizards 11, which doesn't yet have a title, which is so unusual. Usually the title is the first thing that hits me for one of these books, but not in this case. And I think partly that is because this case for this universe, this book is unusually dark. Um, there have been people who say that my book's kind of swing. You get a light one and then a dark one. You get a light one and a dark one. Well, if Games Wizards Play is the light one, then Book 11 is so dark it shades into the ultraviolet. It is going to be an extremely bumpy ride. And other than that, um, there, there are, again, other things I, I can't really discuss, either because I have non-disclosure agreements associated with them, or I just don't want to talk about them because the it, it's too soon. Um, but 2015 has been lively enough. 2016 and 17 are going to be extremely lively, especially at the TV and media end. Um, and I just can't, uh, God, I wish I could get into it. <laughs> I'm going to cry now. Well, maybe we should have you back when we get a chance. Um, when you, you are You will know when. <laughs> oh, good. I promise you, you'll know when. So we won't uh, miss it by accident. My name is going to come up in conjunction with another name, and pe people are going to say, what? <laughs> and it's going to be so much fun. Um, Absolutely. Well, th thank, thank you. Is there anything else you need to ask me before we... <laughs> close this down. I mean, no, yeah. I think that's it. Thank you so much for being here. We've been really excited to talk to you for months now, and um, it's. I think you kind of blew our expectations out of the water, so thank you so much for taking the well, time to talk to us. Thank you. Thank you very much 
you know, for having me. And uh, anytime, let's do this again sometime. Oh, thank yes, you. This absolutely. was so great. <laughs> We'd also love to remind you to uh, head on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show if you're not subscribed. And if you feel so inclined, leave us a rating on iTunes. That's what helps other listeners find our show. And if you would like to support Women at Warp directly, you can visit our Patreon at p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash women at warp. And that helps us do things like travel to conventions, get the word out, uh, speak to more Star Trek related people, and uh, yeah, do some awesome things that we could not do without your support. I think that's it for us. Sue, where can people find you? You can find more from me over at anomalypodcast.com or follow me on Twitter at Speltor. That's S-P-A-L-T-O-R. And you can find me on Twitter at First Time Trek, where I'm live tweeting my first time through Star Trek. And I did a DS9 episode this morning, so that was really fun. Um, you can also find both Sue and I at our Facebook for Women at Warp or our website, womenatwarp.com. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Bye.